you don't want to read the nursing notes in the department, just be prepared to read them from the stand in court. What they have to realize is that that kind of behavior went out with red meat. Being found dead is never a good prognostic sign. Ladies and gentlemen, and doctors of all ages, it's Greg Henry and Rick Bucata coming to you from our two locations, Sunbaked, California, and I don't think I over-exaggerate with that, and wet and rather cool Michigan. You know, this is the coolest uh, summer we've had in, in uh, probably 40 years. It's July, it's 74 degrees, and all the lakes are up. We don't have a water problem. Our only problem is too damn much of the stuff. But uh, in any event, Risk Management Monthly is on the air for July. And I want to start out with something, Rick, that I uh, saw last night, which I hope a lot of our listeners uh, got to watch. Jimmy Fallon came back on the air after two weeks off. And whether you know it or not, he slipped or went down in his kitchen, caught his wedding ring on something on the counter, and he had a degloving injury of the fourth digit of his left hand. And I guess he ripped that sucker, broke it, and pulled almost all the skin off. They took him to one hospital, then moved him to Bellevue in New York, and he described the care that he had, and he was almost in tears. He worships these people. So with all the crap and bad stuff that says, you got to remember, we still do something which helps a whole lot of people out. And when he needed it, he had the people who took care of him, and he said they were very honest. They said, this is touch and go. You know, half of these fingers we do have to cut off. We can't save. But he said his his is taken, and he couldn't have been more kind or more gracious about the medical community last night. So, you know, we talk about our lawsuits. We talk about this or that. You know what? This is still a good way of making a living. And I got no regrets that this that I went into medicine for a living. None at all. No, I have no regrets. I think it's a wonderful profession. And as a matter of fact, a couple of days ago, the new intern class, I guess they call them first-year residents now, at uh, County USC was there, and one of the associate residency directors put together a thing with old-timers. So Ron Stewart was there, one of the founders of EMS in the United States of America. I was there, and a couple of other people who were in classes that were near us were there. Most people in the classes that we were in are no longer on this earth, of course. Yes. <laughs> no, that, that's not exactly true. But in any case, there's about six or seven people along the front of the room talking about emergency medicine to these young pups there who are just coming in like their first day or their first week or thereabouts. It went swimmingly because nobody complained about what they had chosen to do in their life. Everybody was enthusiastic, and everybody said, you're so lucky to be in this profession and at this residency, and you're going to be turned into extraordinary emergency physicians within time. And it was a very, very upbeat session. It was a very frank. It was, it was very uh, tender. It was really very, 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 very nice. Well, one of the things that Jimmy Fallon did was he, he waxed philosophical, which I tend to do, and he said, <clears throat> he said that he got a chance while he was in there for 10 days while nursing this finger. He got a chance to read some great books, and somebody gave him a book which I had already planned on talking about tomorrow because I'm going to a residency and uh, they give me the residence for four hours and basically we get to talk about life. And Jimmy Fallon brought out Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning, which is on my 25 greatest hits list, which I give to residents frequently, things that they should have or ought to have read and reread. And he mentioned how, how sort of life-changing Frankel's book, which is very short, by the way. 
I'm talking not even 200 pages. It's got big print. It's got big print. And it, it was just interesting that just serendipitously, he picked out the one book, one philosophical book, which I recommend to all the residents. And it, there was something reassuring about that. He even brought a copy of the book on. And I mean, this thing is published 50 years ago or 60 years ago. It was shortly after his internment in a Nazi concentration camp. And it was a, it's a spectacular work. I recommend that to any listener who hasn't seen that, read that book. It's a game changer. And I don't say that about many things that are published. All right, down to business. Let's do some things that they paid for. So uh, let's get down to some Well, wait, some one, stuff. one last thing here, Chief. I think that when people who are VIPs get medical care, what they get is not the same as Joe Blow, who's been waiting in the ER for five hours. We had an incident out here where one of our VIP doctors got ill, and he got the King Kamehameha suite at University Hospital and saw the absolute epitome of American medicine with regards to the thoroughness, privacy. He had a whole suite. Everybody was nice to them. All the doctors gave them their, his home phone number, cell number if you need anything. Things that, you know, rank does have its privilege. And so I think you have to take that into consideration when somebody has a really, really good experience. I also acknowledge that, however, that any Joe Blow would probably have had the same care with regards to actually having the finger put back together, which is really the important thing that happened here. But all the accoutrements of this guy's stay, I think, were probably not the same as any other person in you know, the emergency department. We can't treat everybody perfectly, and we can't make everybody VIP, but we can make everybody at least civil and respectful and you're right, not everybody gets a suite, but I think that in general, I think most of the healthcare I've seen come out are people who have tried. And, you know, that's, I think that's better than the Department of Motor Vehicles has ever done, Rick. I promise you. Well, you know, actually, I went recently to the Department of Motor Vehicles because every once in a while in California, they will not automatically renew your license, and so I had to go over and unless take you're test. an illegal unless you're an illegal immigrant, right? Yes, right. Yes, exactly. And there's right actually right down the street from us is one of the famous DMVs of uh, California, and I was expecting to bring my lunch and for, to take this exam, but it was surprisingly I hate to say it surprisingly efficient considering the number of people they had there the people at the uh, desk that gave me my eye test and things like that extraordinarily nice and friendly and it's like why aren't you miserable you've got a job at the dmv but they weren't the only guy that was miserable is the guy who took your picture he was definitely miserable but in any case <laughs> sometimes we are our stereotypical bad organizations, maybe even over time that they can be changing. Enough of this. I think if they haven't turned the radio off by now on this recording, they never will. All right. Let's get, in, let's get into a few things here where there's some judicial decisions we ought to review and talk about. One of those comes from my own state, Walker v. versus Donald Frederick Garver. And this had to do with a hospital's referral of a physician as a potential doctor to a patient. And what that means is he got the name of this doctor from the emergency department. So he went to the doctor. The doctor, there was some problem in their interaction. It did not go well. He not only sued the doctor, but he sued the hospital where he got the name. And this is the claim, that this doctor was, by virtue of the fact on being on the call list, was an agent or servant. He was an agent of the hospital in at least some way. And now there's precedent for that in the state, and, and they call it, are you the ostensible or apparent agent? Well, this is an interesting question because, after all, he went home, he called this doctor, he got into this doctor's care. At that moment, was he still an agent of the hospital? And fortunately for all of us, and believe me, 
Our doctors on the medical staff over the years have brought this question up. You know, how come you're passing out my name? Just give them a list of every damn doctor on the hospital. Let them call up and get someone because it looks like I'm representing the hospital. And I always had the, the attitude that, hey, listen, you know what? This is part of your deal. Take your day like everybody else. Shut up. Well, this case comes up, and fortunately for all of us, the court said that getting the name from the emergency department does not constitute having established a vicarious liability, i.e., the hospital does not also have to stand behind you any more than it usually would, and that you can't sue the hospital based on this. Let me tell you, for emergency docs in the state of Michigan, that's an important decision because it keeps the people on our call list. Here's one more reason why they can't say, oh, I don't want to take call. I don't want to be there because they'll sue me. Well, now we've got a a Supreme Court decision that says, no, they can pass out those names and it, it, it doesn't increase your risk of being sued. Well, you know, as the director of the San Gabriel Valley Emergency Department for 25 years, we did get into this issue about giving out names of physicians. And there was always a doctor on call for the day. And the implication was that you would give that doctor's name out to all of the patients who needed a referral, even though it was just in terms of follow-up. When we're going to be talking about ER follow-up a little bit later today. But in any case, it was a, a potential problem, to be candid, because we had a huge diversity in the ethnicity of our doctors. So if you had a doctor on today who you knew barely spoke English because he's a Chinese doctor, which was very, very common in where we were, and you had a Hispanic patient who barely spoke English, and you were going to hand to this Hispanic patient this Chinese doctor's name, were you really doing them a favor, knowing about these language issues? So one of the things that we developed was a sheet of paper saying, here's all the doctors who take call in the emergency department for primary care. This is the name of the doctor who's on call today. However, all of these other doctors also take call in the emergency department. So that they saw somebody on there, Dr. Hernandez, well, maybe they would prefer to go to Dr. Hernandez than, than Dr. Wong because of, this, of these issues. Or one doctor was closer to where they lived than another doctor kind of thing. So we actually gave them the choice, but it was from the list of all the doctors on call. And we really didn't run into much problem with that, largely because of the diversity of the ethnicity of our, our patients. It just didn't make sense to pair up people who you know are going to have problems right off the get-go. So this this is another point of view of how this can be done in a pro-patient way that hopefully your medical staff will not go berserk over because they said, well, you didn't give the patient my name and I'm, I'm on call today. Because the fact of the matter is, three days from now, when you're not on call, you may get a patient referred to you because of these issues. All right, another another judicial decision here. This is a little more problematic. Tennessee Supreme Court says patients are entitled to offer expert opinion regarding all risks of procedure. Now, here's the case. What they said was it was okay for the injured party to speak as an expert on the question of were they well-informed and did they understand what was told them? And the claim of plaintiff's counsel was, wait a minute, we're not talking about the technicalities of the procedure. What we're talking about is something simple. Who's more expert than the patient themselves to know whether they understood what was going on? Now, this just referred the case, of course, the Supreme Court, back for a retrial. But the point is, what the the court established in Tennessee was a precedent that the patient could speak to, yeah, I was adequately informed, or I didn't understand crap. Now, then, if I was the uh, counsel for the, for the doc, I'd say, wait a minute, did you speak up and tell him you didn't understand what was going on here? 
but and I'm sure that's going to happen in the next uh, in the next trial that follows this one. But I think this was a very interesting decision by the Supreme Court that said, yeah, the patient is the center. They get to speak as an expert witness on the question of whether they were properly informed. What do you think about that, Rick? It's very strange because it just seems that asking a person about whether they're was an understanding about what was going to happen and the potential side effects, et cetera, et cetera. That would just be a matter of testimony in a court. It's the patient sitting on the bench there or, or, or wherever they sit. They sit beside the bench, actually. Yes, they do. Being asked by a lawyer questions that basically focused on, did you understand what was about to happen? I wouldn't term that person an expert witness for crying out loud. They're just, they're just giving their story. I, I, don't slay the messenger here, guy. I'm just reporting on the case. It sounds I, pretty stupid to me. Well, I, I understand that, but there's been stupid things done in cases before. You have, a, you have an article for us to discuss, don't you, Rick? Yes, I does. This article is entitled, Are Soaring U.S. Malpractice Rates Just a Memory Now? It's by Lee Page, freelance writer from Chicago, published in one of the best medical journals, the BMJ, January 27th, 2015. Now, the BMJ is, like TRW, no longer the British Medical Journal. The British Medical Journal is officially now the BMJ. They've changed their name. They've had a kind of a life process reorganization here, and they are no longer, don't you dare call them the British Medical Journal. Whoa, didn't understand that, but go ahead. Did you know that? Uh, I didn't know that. Okay, make the points here. All right, here are the key points. They note that malpractice rates have been skyrocketing between 2000 and 2003. That was a bad, bad, bad period. Neurosurgeons, they say, for an example, were charged up to $300,000 a year yeah, that was the area of things like Wayne County, Cook County, Miami's County, all that sort of thing. But you're right. The, the rates went crazy. Right? Yeah. And then uh, and many of our listeners are probably too young to remember this period when it was like, oh, my God, what's it going to be next year? And physicians were fleeing states where the malpractice insurance was high, going to other states. Uh, people were dropping out of practice. People were stopping doing this procedure or that procedure. It was truly, truly a mess. But since 2005, premiums have been dropping pretty much steadily, with only a few states being an exception, states that are really still quite generous to plaintiffs. But in any case... They have some quotations from people at like at the doctor's company, which is this really large malpractice insurance company. Actually started out here in California, bought up a lot of other smaller companies, and now it's a large company. They claim that at the peak of this problem, the fees have fallen since the peak about 40%. Premiums have fallen as well as claims. The market is soft now and likely to stay that way for some time. But they also point out that there may be some clouds on the horizon. So don't get too complacent about the fact that we're a lot better shape now. They point out that payouts over $10 million are increasing. And too many of these could exhaust insurance company reserves. But the fact of them is they have plenty now. And we'll tell you why in a second. New physician payment methods may cause them to decrease testing. They're concerned that things like systems where Medicare will reward physicians as a result of their charging less because they did less, that those kinds of pay-for-performance tactics may result in more lawsuits because yeah, it may result Rick, in less testing. They don't have data to support that. No. In fact, the only data we have is that the doing or not doing of CT scans of the head made no difference as to whether something was missed. And I think that I hate to hear this discussion go on, because I don't, I want our people to start being selective with some precision on their testing, and still think it's the rare situation where somebody shotgunned everything and picked up some bizarre disease that they would have been sued on. I, I think it's very strange. We should point out that at least looking at the Michigan data, our filings are down sixty percent, and I think the reason for that is twofold. Number one, the plaintiffs. It costs more money today to go to court 
experts, all the things that go with it. I think a lot of cases that may have been taken 20 years ago, you know, they'd have thrown the mud against the wall and see what stuck. They're not willing to risk that money anymore for a tougher payout, a tougher payday. Yeah, well, we're going to get to that. They point out that this issue of maybe we all get more lawsuits because doctors are trying to spend less money in the care of their patients to get these federal rebates. That's just a may, as you pointed out. They also point out that carriers cannot depend on income from investments. And so that was one of the other issues. They had, up until that time, they were making a lot of money in the stock market and buying buildings and all kinds of other things that were adding money to their coffers, like all insurance companies do. And that the brakes got put on that around 2008 when everything went to hell. And so all they could depend on was getting money from premiums and not the, the money from their investments. Right. But let's look at a couple other things. So nobody knows why, for sure, between 2000 and 2003 or four, the crisis really hit. I mean, what we know was average payouts went up per case. But the exact reason for this is clearly not obvious. And it may actually been a herd mentality and a panic that took place as opposed to the actual hard numbers. But I'll tell you what, you can't tell a doctor that. He believes it's all the thieving lawyers and uh, that sort of thing. It's, it's uncertain exactly why that money went up. I know that the reason you gave for the fact that some of their investments of the insurance companies went south certainly forced them to uh, bring in more premium dollars. Yeah, specifically in 2002, investment income went down 30%. Well, they had to make it up somewhere, and they were also concerned that their reserves were going to be an issue. Right, exactly. And what you saw was, obviously, insurance, they don't, whether they're insuring a batch of biscuits, a boatload of shoes, doctors, and St. Paul and some of those, the big companies, decided, you know what, if we're going to be in the risk business, why don't we be in a business we can predict? If a boatload of shoes coming from Asia sinks, They know what the boat costs. They know what the shoes cost. It's pretty simple. Nobody knows what a dead baby in Mississippi is worth as opposed to a dead baby in New York City. And it's a much tougher business to be in the insurance business in medicine than it is in a lot of other things. Well, you know, I do remember when the St. Paul Company went out of (laughs) business, as, as did others out here. Farmers Insurance was a big insurer of emergency physicians as well. And I For a period of time there, I was connected with farmers, and we would go around the states into the rural hospitals doing these malpractice sessions. I remember going through Globe, Arizona, where the copper mines are, and they had all of these little hospitals throughout the state of Arizona. And we went, I went with this lady representing the company, and I would give this like two-hour thing around lunchtime, and uh, it was a roadshow. But ultimately, they got out, and they were biggies. You can see them advertising on TV all the time. So they're certainly in the insurance business. They just don't insure medical business and and doctors anymore. It wasn't worth it. The other thing is, as as all the people, because, you know, I ran two insurance companies, and when you'd meet with them, the people who insured, for example, lumber yards, gave a lumber yard a list of, the do's and don'ts. You can't store kerosene within so many feet of the wood and all this kind of, it seems pretty logical to me, but they said all of those people followed the rules pretty well because they had a clause that if their inspector stopped in and saw that stuff, a violation, they could cancel the insurance that day. They said doctors didn't take advice from insurance people very well. And they, they never had the same compliance with doctors as they did with uh, people who owned lumber yards. Historically, in 2004, things started to turn around. Claims went down, payouts went down. However, insurance companies maintained their rates for a few years to refill their coffers, otherwise known as increasing their profits. There was this lag, and insurance companies made a lot of money causing a lot of new companies to go into the business. It went from no companies to a, a raft of them. Yes. Uh, the doctors' companies 
claim rates have gone down every year, they say, since 2004. In this article, there was a JAMA study quoted noting that rates fell 36% between 2004 and 2013 for internists, for OBGYNs as well, and 30% for surgeons in California, Illinois, Tennessee. But in New York State, state with a nasty malpractice history, rates actually have gone up 12% for the OBGYN, 16% for internists, and a third for general surgeons. Although one New York company gave a one-time special dividend to customers in 2015 because payouts had fallen. I think that in these states, they remain frightened of these mega, mega suits that may occur and uh, are maintaining reserves that require these kinds of premiums. Although you always wonder, Greg, and since you were involved, are there any kind of statutes that talk about not only the minimum reserves, but maximums and when you start to have to lower your premiums or giving out these one-time bonuses. Tell me about that. Well, you've got to remember that a lot of the insurance company, about half of the medical malpractice insurance companies in the country are mutually owned. That is, when you say there's profits being made, well, if it's Copic in, in Colorado, that money doesn't go to shareholders. It goes back to the doctors who paid into it. And so for those people, they ask this question, what's the calculated reserve we need to keep in the pot? And then we'll just drop everybody's insurance a little bit or do what they did. In fact, COPEC has recently done that. They've made some adjustments that way. But yes, the insurance commissioner of every state looks at what the liability is, then they calculate what those reserves have to be. The big danger in calculation is this, Rick. It's like deciding today on the price of a car. Say I'm going to build a car, and in 15 years I'm going to deliver that car. How do you decide, <laughs> You know, particularly if you're insuring OB people, how do you decide You know how much money you put aside for some of those things? You know, although rates have gone down in a lot of states and a lot of places, some of the OB people have not seen their rates go down. And that's simply because of this problem of the state insurance commissioner requiring reserves for something that they may not pay out for many, many years. That's the difficult part. Well, this author basically claims that there's not a really great explanation about why things went bad during those couple of years. And she also claims there's really not a great explanation of why they've gotten better when they look at all of the factors that would be logically considered. So, Greg, tell us about what she has to say about this recovery. Well, the recovery is certainly not a guarantee, and where it's going, we don't know for sure, but I think it's important to say that what we have done in the last few years, limiting pain and suffering levels, putting on state caps you know, ranging between $250,000, $750,000. All of these things have made at least some dent in most states. Now, there are still counties within states which are absolutely vituperous. I mean, you don't want to deal with Cook County, Illinois, and I've got three or four cases from there we're going to review in a little bit. But people are threatening now that we've gone through this phase, to get busy and overturn these caps, which they have at the state level. Florida, Georgia, Illinois have all done things that they think they can do to overturn these caps. But where this is going to go, no one knows. Using a panel or using an outside system of some way of making a decision has had very mixed results in the country. For example, the system they use, the pretrial screening in New Hampshire requires both parties agree to use whoever the media is going to be, which means they can almost never agree on who that person's going to be. And what did they comment in here? That two cases in New Hampshire had gone to the panel in 2013, two cases <laughs> that they could actually agree upon. That's not a great record, Rick. Yeah, well, I guess that's the issue there is you both parties have to agree to use this panel arbitration method. And I think generally, 
when you have a lawsuit, most people think that they're going to win and they don't want to have to depend on the vagaries of some kind of panel of experts so much. They point out that, I, I didn't know this, a dozen states have overturned their caps. I, we've talked yeah. about this occurring and there was this big referendum. You know, California's a big referendum state. You know, if you get enough names on the ballot, you can have a referendum <laughs> in the state that, you know, the name the state dog. Yeah, right, exactly. But that's, and, and some people say that's really not a good way to do business. But the fact is they did have one recently where they were going to take off the cap in California, which is a measly $250,000 pain and suffering cap. And they were going to say, that's never kept up with inflation. That cap is 25 years old. And let's get one that is more consistent with what is uh, going on now in the economy. So they developed this inflation adjuster. And it just so happened that if this law were to pass, the cap would then be $1.1 million. And it would change every year based on some kind of index. And you would have thought that this, it was predicted that this referendum, it was absolutely going to pass no ifs, ands, or buts. These mean doctors were not allowing people to sue, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And this thing was roundly defeated, roundly defeated. And so the cap remains a measly $250,000. And, you know, we've talked about the downside of this is that meritorious cases are not taken because of these caps. ProPublica, which is an independent group of investigative journalists, have found hundreds of cases of patients that have been harmed but have not been pursued because they cannot find an attorney to take the case. And I've gone through a number of examples. Specifically, even physicians' parents could not find a lawyer to take care of their case because of the cap here in California of $250,000. Well, I think it's time for our update now of Senate Bill 86 in Georgia. As you know, we've been following Georgia simply because they had a lot of good things for emergency medicine early on, which seemed to be working. Then they had the reversal case. But there, there's a recent bill which was passed in Georgia this past winter. It would represent a landmark change in malpractice environment. What the Georgia legislature has just said is, we don't want to deal with this anymore. And I don't know exactly what's happening at this moment, but effective January 1st, 2016, so we're talking now six months, the cause of action under the Georgia law for medical malpractice against providers, as defined in their health code, is hereby repealed. And what it's going to be replaced by a Patient Compensation Act, which calls for the establishment of a patient's compensation system, then that, that patient's advocate, obviously an attorney they hire, would appeal the system to investigate his or her injury. But it's not like they would send it to a panel after a lawsuit's going. You got to go through this system. Now, all the details of the way this is going to work are not totally laid out. But what they claim is they could run the system because they're going to cut out a lot of the experts, a lot of the sort of the skim of the system. And a family practitioner, for example, would pay right now about 3900 bucks a year into the system. It would cost an orthopedic surgeon about 15000 It would cost a spine surgeon about 17000 if you look at what's currently being paid now in a lot of places, Rick, that's chump change. I know orthopedic surgeons who bill that out every week. That's not huge money. And obviously, the neurosurgeons were the highest on the list with twenty-three grand. And a similar bill is now being floated in Florida. We should keep on top of this because if the Georgia bill goes through, I'd be interested to see what happens to suits how much emergency docs have to kick in? This is this is uncharted territory, Rick. But I think the public in general is getting tired. I think they're tired of showing up on juries on these cases. And I think they're, they think the system does not work. This is Senate Bill 86. And I couldn't find when I searched the internet whether in fact this thing passed or didn't pass no. uh, or the like. So if you know about the status of Senate Bill 86 in Georgia... Please let us know. From the sound of it, this bill has to be 
defeated. I cannot envision this bill going to passage because it is just way too reasonable. And it shuts down the malpractice attorney system in in For Georgia. For practical purposes, right. Yeah, and, and the other good thing it does is that it allows people to have who have had injuries but are not impeded by this $250,000 cap to have their day in front of this panel saying, well, the guy injured my toe here. I know it's not 250000 but listen, you know, it hurt me, and I, I can you give me $10,000. It's one of those things where everybody should have their say in court, which was really one of the major objections, if not the major objections, on the citizen side when they had these caps. So yeah, it would be terrific to know where this is going because this is a total upheaval in the state of Georgia of the medical malpractice system. And it sounds like the only people who would be hurt by this are the lawyers. Yes, both defense attorneys and plaintiff's attorneys. What we always forget to mention on this show is the every defense attorney lights a candle at night to the plaintiff's bar because if they don't file lawsuits, those guys would have to get an honest living and it, it'd kill them, I promise you. Rick, what do you say we go to some emails? Uh, we emails. Do have, yeah, we have loyal people writing in. Emails. Uh, yeah. Jim Henson's hospital wants the ED docs to write admitting orders for patients going directly from the ED to a nursing home. Well, that's an interesting switcheroo here. We're not talking about writing admitting orders into the hospital. We're talking about sending them to a nursing home. There are some forms such that they're available to facilitate writing these orders, and apparently the emergency doctor uh, H&P is adequate at least to get the patient in the door. Well, I'll tell you what, if their experience where Jim is is like my experience, that may be the last time the patient's actually reasonably examined in the rest of their life uh, because there's a whole lot of doctors who are on staff at a whole lot of nursing homes where the whole concept of re-examining the patient has disappeared. His physicians feel this is beyond their scope of practice and that they may be made delay and they want some sort of delaying tactic until the primary care physician has seen the patient at the nursing home. What do you think, Rick? Well, you know, I hate to go before the CEO and say, this is not within my scope of practice. What a chicken shit thing to say. That's chicken shit, right? We're not talking about neurosurgery here, doctor. We're talking about admitting Mrs. So-and-so to the nursing home. However, However, I would acknowledge that all of these patients have to be ultimately seen by a primary care physician, that in fact, many of them have large numbers of comorbidities that do not make this an easy thing to do. The primary care doctor may know these people. I certainly don't know these people. They come in with a bag of 10 medicines. The uh, medication reconciliation process, you know how reliable that is. Yeah. You know, you have, here you're on four NSAIDs, okay? Are you still on these four NSAIDs? Oh, yeah, I take all four of these a day. Oh, great. So I don't think from a medical point of view, it's a good idea. This is an idea based on convenience and don't bother the doctor, but it's not about the patient. Anytime you have a process where it's starting to go from the patient to the doctor, you have to kind of think twice. It doesn't seem that it would be the world's worst thing to call up the primary care doctor and say, your patient, Mrs. So-and-so, is headed over to the nursing home. Now, the patient may be not an assigned patient, which may be a little bit different. I don't know this patient from Adam. The primary care doctor doesn't know this <laughs> patient from Adam. And so you think that the primary care doctor needs to kind of rise to the occasion. They may certainly give some holding orders that allow them to come in the next day. I think the rules of a nursing home, however, are such that a doctor does not have to go very often I mean, it's surprisingly infrequent that a doctor has to physically go to a nursing home to see a patient to maintain the right to bill for that care by Medicare. I don't know what it is, but I'm not so sure that this patient is going to be seen the next morning like you would have if a patient is admitted to the hospital. Yeah, well, we, we can conclude that that's not going to happen. I, I would look at it another way, though. Emergency medicine is on a shifting sand at this moment. We are utilizing advanced practice providers in lots of ways. My own group is getting into the virtual emergency department. They're doing backup on nursing homes. 
24 hours a day. They can call and get an opinion. Obviously, the toughest area is making sure that everybody's in agreement with how much is going to be done for a grandpa. And that's a tough area. But we can't rule anything out at this moment. I don't like going to the administrator and stamping my feet and saying, we can't do this. What I'd rather do is go in and say, here's what we need to make sure this thing runs well. Because I think there's going to be more and more things required of emergency physicians and groups. And if you don't think that isn't going to be part of a contract negotiation, I think you're just wrong. You know, it's I, going to be part of it. I agree 100%. The idea that the emergency department will be the source of the direction of patients in terms of where they go and that we need to develop that expertise and be the answer to the CEO's problem, not the cause of the CEO's problem. Because when patients come in, they have a choice of they're going to go home or they're going to get admitted. But wait, there's two other options. We can send you directly to a nursing home. Particularly if you're not a Medicare patient, you don't need this you know, ridiculous two-day admission to the hospital first. And they've got to change that. Wait, wait a second. This is like <clears throat> medical monopoly. Do, do not go directly to the ICU. Do not deposit $20,000 of federal money into this place. This is going to change the economics of the situation, Rick. I mean, you and I, are we're, we're just pimples on the butt of this big dog. And the big dog is the hospital bill that goes with these people. This could be, unless it's, of course, a readmission, in which case the hospital's not going to get paid anyway. Well, yeah, I think that there are some nuances there. But, but the fourth option that is there is, are you going to send the patient into the observation unit? Now, there's right. some economic reasons why doing observation is great for Medicare and not so great for the patients when it comes to deductibles and, and the like. However, from a medical point of view, that may be the thing to do. You have some woman who has pyelonephritis. She has a fever and is vomiting, and you spiff her up with some antibiotics, and 12 hours later, she's ready to play the drum. Well, you've done everybody a favor. She went into the OBS unit. That was where that, that was handled. It was handled nicely and appropriately. You saved the hospital and admission. So I believe that we're going to be the center of determining where people go. We're going to be working in conjunction with hospitalists. And as you know, many ER groups have already formed hospitalist groups so that they can go to the CEO and say, we're not your problem. We are your answer. And the ER groups just sink the hook all that more deeply in terms of the, their relationship with the hospital. So I think that this is a skill set. I must acknowledge that, you know, I don't necessarily know how to take care of somebody who's got CHF for two days. I can give you the first two hours, but I don't know if I can give you the first two days. Same thing with some other medical issues. So I think it's not only a matter of learning the mechanics of how to run a observation unit, but also learning the, me the medicine of it. There are some courses now being given throughout the country. <laughs> Course, a few courses, Rick. <laughs> I can't open my emails without seeing such, such courses. Every, every week there's one being given somewhere. On so this. there's these courses that are, are about being an observationalist, not only the medical part, but the financial part of setting up an observation unit. You've got PAs, NPs, you've got doctors, you've got the whole kit and caboodle. People have done it. People have done it well. There's a friend by the name of Robin Dick out of Maryland. He's been running a course now for the last mm, two years. I think they're coming on their third year now about, and it's a couple-day course, and it's, in, it's, some, it's usually somewhere in Maryland or Baltimore about how to do this. And so I think that the smart Emergency department director is going to have their eyes opened about this. We want to be the answer to the problem, not the problem. Yeah. We've got another case here. Steve DeBold sent us a question, and Rick, your response to this was classic because he sent the question to me, and of course, you became hurt. Your feelings were hurt. I thought your answer was superb, but uh, I just want everybody to know that Rick is as insecure as the rest of us. So, you know, uh, <laughs> this guy, this guy, I actually put down in our notes here, Steve said, this question is for Dr. Henry. Now, I can tell you that nobody writes, this question is for Dr. Henry. 
they usually write, uh, I have a question for the boys. Here's a question for uh, Greg and Rick. Here's a, you know, like, I'm not allowed to touch his questions. Don't even stand back. It's, I'm going to keep my mouth shut from here on. Go ahead, Greg. Yeah, Steve, thank you for writing. And obviously, you're a man of excellent taste. He says, I haven't started wearing a body cam yet. But with everything going on in the news and all of the discussions about about human interactions, particularly police on the scene and family fights and arrests and all of that, he hasn't started wearing a body cam yet. But all I have been doing is taking a laptop into the room whenever I see a patient for the history of present illness. I type verbatim whatever the patient says, including the ums inconsistencies, abrupt direction changes in narrative. Basically, I'm writing down whatever crap is coming out of their mouth, even when it doesn't make sense. Is this a good idea? Rick, should we jump in early here? Or I'm sorry, you? Greg. This question is not for oh, me. Oh, yeah, yeah, you're right. And, and I'm, I'm so glad. Will this provide me a better defense when the jury can see? That's what the patient actually said. Is, is not as clear-cut as what the lawyers would have you believe. Steve, understand this. You're a doc. One of your jobs is to take that mishmash of varied information, distill it down to something that makes some sense. All of us have been through the case where there will be an unusual word or phrase which we will actually put with exclamation marks around it or something to show that that actually came out of the patient's mouth. But first of all, how would you ever have the time to sit there and write all that stuff down, number one? Number two, the way we talk as humans is mostly gibberish. You have to distill it down into something we can understand. A jury understands that. I don't think this is any protection from anything. And I can't picture that this is easier to defend than two well-written paragraphs that summarize the situation. Now, Rick, I, I'm inviting you to jump in. Well, you know, if I was invited to give an opinion here, <laughs> I would have said, which I did say to this fellow, yeah, that your job is to synthesize all of this gibberish into a coherent history of present illness. And yes, make him out in fragmented forms, but I don't think you're going to get any sympathy from the jury. He sent us two paragraphs. Here's what the patient said, which is about three paragraphs longer than here's what I distilled this down to. So Greg and I both agreed that this was not a smart thing to do. That is not the anticipation of what a physician should be doing with regards to deriving a history and physical by asking questions, looking at the modifiers, et cetera, et cetera. So despite the fact that I was not asked to participate in this question, I agree fully with Dr. Henry's assessment. <laughs> well, and, and again, Steve, And I'm going to go back and, and suck my thumb in the corner. <laughs> exactly. All right, Rick, do the next case because it's actually well, very interesting. Steve, uh, despite the fact that he sent this other uh, ridiculous question... <laughs> Also sent us a case that has a great deal for us in the emergency department. So anyway, this guy's going for a colonoscopy. And the anesthesiologist is there. And the guy's kind of probably a little bit of a worry ward. And he wants to make sure that he understands the instructions that are given to him after this procedure is over by the doctor. And so in, to do that, he is going to record those instructions so just about as he is being put under, he pushes the record button on his cell phone, which records the entire procedure, not just the instructions at the end. And during that procedure, a, a woman anesthesiologist who, whose name will uh, be left out makes all kinds of derogatory remarks about this guy. And as a matter of fact, if you go onto the website of this case, they have all of these things that this anesthesiologist said, you can play them and just see, hear how outrageous they are. I've, I, I've gone back and I pushed that and listened to it. The point is, is it hilariously funny? Yes, it is. Is it absolutely inappropriate? Oh, my God. And 
if we're all honest on this tape, it's just us mice here. We've all been involved where people are chattering at the table, making comments, you know, and, and some of them, I mean, we're doctors. We make rude, gross, inappropriate sexual comments. I mean, shit happens. But this was this was worse than well, there she was, expected. The, she started off by saying, after talking to you for five minutes in pre-op, I wanted to punch you in the face and make you man up a little bit. Sounds like he was a. This is obviously when the patient is under. Yeah. The, the the assistant said there's a there's a rash there. Uh, noted a rash in the guy. She said the anesthesiologist said probably some syphilis on your arm, or you better better wash it off. Oh no, it's probably tuberculosis on the, of the penis. You know they were having this outrageous discussion back and forth, also involving the uh, GI doctor who was in doing this. So he also got his but sued because of remarks that they were making. They were also making remarks about who was going to tell the patient the results of it and who was going to do the charting and all kinds of things that were kind of on the edge with regards to, to a medical propriety. And so on the way home from his colonoscopy, he slips this on expecting to hear the instructions at the end. And here's the entire thing where they just rip him to shreds as a patient, defaming him and causing him great anguish. And they call him a retard. (laughs) Uh, And they speak to him in the most derogatory terms possible. I don't know what happened before this procedure, but clearly... If you listen to this, they didn't like him. And this is an unfortunate, an unfortunate event. You know, in the news business, everyone is taught this. Just assume microphones are on. Just assume that it's live and it's hot. We've all done something which should not, you know, when when the wireless microphones first came out, before a big talk to 500 people, I went into the bathroom. I had my wireless mic on. I came back into the room to a standing ovation of the of the folks, and I wasn't just urinating. Oh, and great. It was, that uh, was yeah, great. This, yeah, this was great. You know, you'd like to have those moments back, and I'm sure these people would. It's interesting that it cost them 500000 bucks for defamation. I mean, what do you think about that? I mean, is, is you, uh, you know, there is always some relief of tension with humor in medical situations. But this one, just well, understand. And by the way, your malpractice carrier for any of them that I, any carriers I was associated with would not cover this. This is an intentional tort, not malpractice. Yes, this was bad. I think there were some elements uh, that kind of hinged on malpractice related to some charting elements, but the vast majority of this was, you know, gross disregard for the person's privacy, and you can see that the jury was angry that this happened, (laughs) especially when you play this back, and I don't want to give you the, just look up in the internet, anesthesiologist, and throw in there $500,000, and smartphone. You put those three words in there, I bet you're going to find this case. And lawsuit. Right. Yes. Right. 500,000 simoles for these that was paid for by by both doctors, actually. This anesthesiologist obviously was terminated from her position at this surgery center where this occurred. She has subsequently moved to Florida where she's still having a terrible time getting a job, as you might envision, as you might envision. Yes, they called the patient a retard. Uh, All right. I think Next. I think the anesthesiologist should have been called a retard for crying yeah, out loud. We need to we need to go beyond this one. Well, you know, the uh, point is is that you know we've talked about this in the past. What should be the policy of the emergency department with regards to filming and recording? And I think that it should there should be a very large, obvious sign that when you go into an ER that says for the privacy of our patients. Filming and, and recording is not permitted in the emergency department. So you need to have a good reason. The reason is privacy of all the patients because you can hear others, you can see others. So it's like, well, they're doing it for my privacy. I think that I can embrace that more, my privacy. Rick, so, if, the, if the sign said we're doing this 
because we're afraid of getting sued and we want to make <laughs> <Yeah>. fun of you. <laughs> Are we allowed to have that sign in the department? Yes. No, you want to have a, a, a sign that, that just as I suggested for the okay. s- for sake of the patients. All right. Chris Lusher wrote us two emails. Number one, he wants Rick to stop using the word provider. <laughs> he says, Rick, he says you used it over 20 times in a recent issue. Obviously, he kept score. He had a piece of paper there and kept it. But Chris, we got a problem here. And that is provider takes into account both physicians and non-physician people who are giving out health care. Now, provider to me is not the same as being doc so-and-so, but it's a reflection of our current reality. The other thing is You've got to be very careful what you call NPs and PAs these days. This is a point of real sensitivity, and and I don't think we can get away from the, the fact. And believe me, I'm the least politically correct guy you know, but I've been taken to task on this a couple times. And, Rick, isn't it true that people who come to our courses have actually criticized certain of our docs for what they've called them? Well, Greg, you and I have a course that we're doing in about a week and a half, the Advanced Emergency Medicine Boot Camp. Good time for a plug here. Yes, I was going to say shameless, shameless plug. And yes, there is an issue. And the PAs, they've kind of settled it. If if you read clinician reviews, there was an editorial by Randy Danielson and... You know, there was a move for physician's assistants to be called physician associates. And I think that that's kind of a nice term to tell you the truth. And physician's assistant implies like, you know, my helper kind of thing, my lowly. But in any case, they agreed to keep the term physician assistants. So there's no argument there. They internally have settled it and said, we're going to call ourselves physician assistants. On the nurse practitioner side is where the problem arises because there's this big push for all of the nurse practitioners to get a PhD. And therefore, you are technically now Dr. Smith, the nurse practitioner, rather than Mr. Smith, the nurse practitioner. And obviously, there's opportunity here for patients to be confused. And in fact, some states now have regulations that say you have to identify yourself as a nurse practitioner. You just cannot say, I'm Dr. So-and-so. By the way, I have my first lawsuit involving that. Really? And the, Yes. And the patient says they were deceived mm-hmm. because if they had known this wasn't a real doctor, they would have asked, do you have a supervisor or can I see a real doctor? Now, the underlying malpractice case is exacerbated by this case where they say there's fraud. Now, what you can use that for is to inflame the jury. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, where does it say here that they're going to be seen by a nurse practitioner? And your doctorate is not an MD degree, is it, nurse so-and-so? And this was a case that was difficult because of her personality where she said, well, of course, I'm Dr. So-and-so. And you know what? This isn't going to go well for us. She needs reorientation on the defense side as to what you said and what you do. And this is the first time I've seen this claimed in a lawsuit. I got lots of other claims with nurse practitioners and PAs and who supervised and who didn't and what they were supposed to be called in on. But this is the claim where she called herself doctor is what the patient said. Well, I agree that the word provider stinks. I think a better word is clinician. So I think that that was where I'm going to be going. We are clinicians, PAs, NPs, physicians. We are clinicians. I don't like to be called a provider either. A provider implies you are the agent of the, you know, the patient kind of thing. It sounds like it's a higher versus lower kind of thing. And we just don't like it. So how about we just call ourselves clinicians? Do you want to do the... uh... Well, wait a second. I think that he made a point in the next thing he wrote about here. And that is, we had one of our lawyers on who made a suggestion that... The lawyer said, 
at least three times on the tape. You've got to write down and tell a patient to see their doctor the next day. And he basically says that's a bunch of crap. They need to see a provider. Clinician. Clinician in the usual expected time frame. If you have a sprained ankle, what good is it to see the doctor the next, the next day? Why would you do that unless the foot's turned blue, there's no pulse, intractable pain? Yes, there are reasons to do it. But to send everybody, particularly with self-limited disease, to see a doctor the next day increases the cost of health care and really doesn't do the, the greater system any good. I'd go a little further, Greg, and said that this is unethical behavior. And Chris's comment precipitated a column that I wrote. It's probably going to be in the August issue of EP Monthly entitled unethical referrals from the ED. And I give lots and lots and lots of examples of people who should not be referred to their doctor the next day, where it is medically inappropriate to refer them to the doctor the next day. And you're just doing it to cover your ass, but you basically cost that person maybe a day from work. There's a $250 doctor bill. And the doctors, what are they going to do? Shrug their shoulders because it's like, well, yeah, the ankle is sprained, but it's going to take another three weeks. And one of the things I did in the EP monthly column is list all of the papers I had in our database looking at how long things take to resolve. And I'm just going to go through one of those in terms of symptom resolution. This is a result of 48 trials being analyzed looking at how long it took the controls to get better. These are all kids, weren't they, Rick? Yeah, seven yeah, to eight yeah. days for otitis media. So you can expect a kid to have this symptom going on from otitis for seven to eight days, between two and seven days for a sore throat, two days for, for croup. Yeah, croup goes away quickly. Catch this, 21 days for bronchiolitis, 25 days in the setting of an acute cough, 15 days in, in children with a common cold. This study said that 90% of the kids would be resolved within that period of time, meaning 10% would be beyond that period of time. This was affirmed by two trials that I have cited in the EP Monthly column. Bottom line is you should refer them to the follow-up doctor when it is medically appropriate with regards to the time frame related to that case, not just to cover your butt. Well, we went through a lot of phases of this. I remember first uh, started to practice. People wanted lacerations seen the next day. Everybody didn't make any difference. And we thought, you know, if you're going to get infected and get pus and redness and that sort of thing, it's not going to be there the next day. You sewed them up at 7 p.m. In the, in the emergency department and they show up at 7 in the morning or 2 in the afternoon. That's just crazy crap. And the thought that every laceration has to be seen within the first 48 hours to make sure it's infected. You know what? Patients are smarter than that. If it's painful and red and you've written that down, they're going to come back. And if it's doing just fine, why do you care? I mean, it's, it's not that it's hard work, but you're right, Rick. There's economic questions here if there's a charge associated with that sure there will be uh, yeah well i don't care whether it's the hospital or the doc or whatever it is doesn't make any difference what you've done is added another burden to the system with no medical advantage and no medical legal advantage you know the attorney who made that recommendation is an attorney whose job is to keep doctors from getting lawsuits and the fact right. is that if you wanted to do 100% lawsuits, you would er order every test known to man, and you would refer them to another doctor immediately. But that's not how we practice. And so I agree with Chris. Chris, I think you picked up on a really, really important point that we were not aggressive enough when we spoke with that attorney, but which I think we are trying to fix because, as I've noted to Chris, in the notes from that issue where the attorney mentioned that, I did make a paragraph indicating my concern that that's not a fair thing to do to patients to have refer them all. Gregory, we're into this now six to 71 minutes. We got three minutes for wine at the most there, Chief. 
Three minutes? I haven't even done any of my cases for this month yet. Well, we just three minutes. We, well, we just rattled on for too long about right, irrelevant okay. stuff. All right, we're gonna do wine, wine of the month, wine of the month. Now, again, I've harped on this. I hope the Chinese become less rich only because they're buying up all the damn wine. They've already bought up all the damn scotch in the world, so it's gone up like crazy. They bought the wine. And I'm just going to give you some numbers, which have just come out, because there's been a review of the 2005 California Napa Valley wines. And everybody expects that Opus One, you know, $315 a bottle. Yeah, okay, but they've been high-priced for a long time. There's one called Plump Jack Winery. Cabernet Sauvignon, perfectly reasonable. You know, this is a 96, 97 kind of wine. They want $811 for it. God, God help me. This is, this, this is going, in fact, even the guy, Robert Parker, had to say in his review, he said, you can't look at the price. I said, what do you mean you can't look at the price? Because even he said, this has gone crazy. If it wasn't for rich people from other countries buying this stuff, it wouldn't be around. But what I am going to do is refer you back to a wine which is in damn near every wine store where you live. It's from the state of Washington, which I think is turning out some fantastic wines. Columbia Crest was a cheap white and a cheap red, which we bought for years. Said, you know, this tastes pretty good. It's not too expensive. They gave the Columbia Crest... Cabernet Sauvignon Reserve, a 91, Rick, a 91, at 25 bucks a bottle. <laughs> I mean, come on, come on, help me out here, and, and this has got to be good. I went to a fancy place for lunch yesterday with a doc, and what did you, they have? You, you obviously weren't paying. Uh, well, of course, he was paying, actually. But the, but the th- joke is, when he ordered his wine, he looked at the list and said, anything good here? And there was a La Crema on there and I said, guy, you'll like this. And it's the cheapest one on the list. I said, this is a great wine. And he enjoyed it thoroughly. So I'm recommending this month, stay out of Napa, stay out of $800 wines. This is for crazy people. The Columbia Crest 2012 Cabernet Sauvignon Reserve, Watoma Springs Vineyard, which is part of the Columbia Crest group there. It's fantastic. They have nothing but good things to say about it. And you know what? You can get most winos in the country know this one. That's how available this one is. So there you go, Rick. That's the suggestion for the month. Okay, Gregory, we're right at the end of our recording time. Thanks for waking me up this morning. And I, I did oversleep. I'm sorry about that. I think that we next month we definitely have to get to the cases which have been piling up. But we are caught up now on our email. We love the emails when you send them in, so don't hesitate. We promise not to embarrass you too much, even though you will address the email only to be answered by Dr. Henry. Yes, of course. And so we, we thank you for understanding the pecking order here in knowledge and information. <laughs> okay, so this is Greg saying goodbye. And we'll see you next month. Bye for now. Oh, my God.